How are y'all doing? Well, I learned a few things this weekend. Many of you know it was my first trip to the Grove. And here's what I learned. It is not really helpful to say, hey, come see us in our tent by the stage. (laughs) It's not really helpful to say, hey, my family has a tent in the circle. Come see us. Our tent is blue. (laughs) Because there are 600 tents by the stage. There's a thousand tents in the circle and every other one is blue. The only way, and so if I didn't come see you and I said I would, I'm so sorry. But I found one person that invited me to their tent and if I didn't, and I found them and they actually physically took me uh, to their tent in the Grove. So I learned that really, and you can't get cell coverage. That's another thing I found out. It takes forever to send a text and you can't get through. And so um, I learned a lot and I also learned that uh, you can get your heart ripped out pretty quickly cheering for Ole Miss football. <laughs> I was so excited thinking we're going to start off with a win. Up 13 points in the fourth quarter. And uh, anyway, I was disappointed. <laughs> Very disappointed. But uh, I had a great time. My first trip to the Grove and the game was really exciting. Didn't, didn't like the outcome too well. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. There's an outline printed for you uh, on the handout. There's also the scripture passage if you don't have your Bible. It was around this time, almost exactly a year ago, when I found myself entering a kingdom. I entered this kingdom with many expectations, many hopes, many dreams of what life would be like in this kingdom. After all, the picture that had been painted for me on the advertisements that I'd received and the brochures and actually the DVD made it seem like this kingdom was the happiest place on earth. And not only that, the people in this kingdom, they had a smile all the time. And when you would finish a conversation with them, they would say, have a magical day. (laughs) I entered this kingdom with hopes of comfort and much rest and incredible joy and constant smiles only to find when I got to this kingdom, enormous cost. Long lines, long waits, Very expensive food that really wasn't all that good. Lots of tears and profuse sweat. I'm talking obviously about the magic kingdom. And when I thought about entering the magic kingdom, my expectations were one thing. I expected one thing and instead I got something totally different. And as I thought about the kingdom of God, we often enter the kingdom of God the very same way. We have dreams and expectation and hopes when we enter the kingdom of God of joy, constant joy, constant smiles, 
comfort and rest. But when we get there, we find sacrifice. We find repentance. We find enormous cost. And we find a call to come and die. You see, the kingdom of God is not what we expect, is it? In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, Jesus gives us right expectation about what life in the kingdom is like. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Let me pray before we begin. Father, uh, this is a challenging passage that we come to tonight. And the temptation is to soften it. The temptation is to make it say something uh, other than what it really says. Um, And I pray that we wouldn't. I pray that I wouldn't. uh, Because I think it's pretty clear. And so would you help us to wrestle with this passage, but would you bring us to repentance? Would you bring us to a deeper commitment to you uh, as a result of encountering your word this evening? Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. As soon as John gets put into prison, Jesus sees that it's his cue to begin his ministry. In the very first words that we have recorded in the Gospel of Mark, his very first sermon, if you will, begins with the words, The time has come. The English language really doesn't pick up on the nuances that exist in other languages. For example, we only have one word for time. Well, the Greeks had a couple of words, different words for time. They had uh, a word that was the passing of time or the time on your watch. But that's not the word that we have here in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. That's not this word. This word time is weighty time, an important time, a time that is literally pregnant with significance. And so when Jesus says that the time has come, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that what I am doing right now in bringing the kingdom is the most decisive event in God's redemptive history. Everything in history, Jesus is saying, is going to hinge on this one event, the coming of the kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is is here. And so if the kingdom is here, and Jesus brought the kingdom, which he says he did... The question is, what is it like? How do we enter it? What is required of us once we are in the kingdom? Well, Mark answers those important questions in the passage before us this evening. And he does it by showing us that the kingdom is about three things. If you have an outline, you can follow along with me. Mark's going to show us that the kingdom is about... He's going to show us the nature of the kingdom. He's going to show us the entrance into the kingdom. And then finally, he's going to show us the call of the kingdom. Let's start with number one, the nature of the kingdom. Look at verse 17. Jesus tells Simon and Andrew that he's going to make them fishers of men. Fishing is when you take fish out of darkness 
and bring them into light. And so when we fish for men, it is when we bring people, it's the idea of bringing people out of one realm into another. It makes sense when we realize that in the Bible, the sea or water often is a symbol of darkness, often is a symbol of death and chaos. And that is why uh, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 says that believers are taking out of darkness and taken and brought into the kingdom of the Son. And so the point is, is that Jesus, in bringing the kingdom, brings us so much more than simply forgiveness of sin. Jesus has come into the world to take people out of one realm and to put them in another. In other words, Jesus comes. And when he comes, he brings about a totally new in a totally different way of seeing life and community. And so in order for us to really get what what Mark is saying here, we must understand that every one of us lives in a kingdom of sorts. Your kingdom is nothing more than the structures or the values that shape your understanding of who you are and how you see the world around you. And so if that is true, Old Miss is, in a sense, a kingdom, isn't it? There are social structures here, aren't they? Aren't there social structures here? And you know, I haven't been here that long, but I've been here long enough to identify what a couple of those social structures are. One of the social structures is this. The beautiful are in, and the ugly are out. And not only that, I've been here long enough to learn that if you're fortunate enough to come from the right family, then you have privileges that other people simply don't have. You see, friends, this place, and any place for that matter, is going to shape you. It's going to pressure you to adopt its values and its way of life and its social structures. But what we see here in this passage is that God brings something different, doesn't He? God comes, Jesus comes, and He brings the kingdom of God, which is a brand new society. It's a brand new realm for God's creatures. It's a realm in which Jesus is king in which Jesus actually rules and reigns. And so think about this question. What would it look like on this campus if from one end to the campus to the other, if Jesus ruled and reigned here? If Jesus ruled and reigned here, then things would be different, wouldn't they? The values and the structures and the social structures would actually begin to reflect who? They would reflect the king. And they would reflect his kingdom. And what that means is that we would treat money differently. We would treat our sexuality differently. We would treat our toys or our possessions differently. Relationships between men and women would be different. Our racial attitudes would be different. 
And not only that, when we saw people and looked into someone else's eyes, we wouldn't see them as objects of self-advancement and people to be used, but we would actually see as we look into another person's eyes that they are someone that is created in God's image. You see, the point is that some kingdom, something, is presently shaping you. You're following the rules of something, of someone, of some king, of some kingdom. And the question I want to put before you is, which kingdom are you building tonight? Your own? Someone else's? Or are you building God's kingdom? First thing Mark shows us is the nature of the kingdom. Secondly, he shows us the entrance into the kingdom. Look at verses 14 and 15. Something as powerful as the kingdom of God demands a response, doesn't it? I mean, if Jesus has come and the king is present, then life has to change. Life has to change and we must turn from our sinful ways and our indifference towards God. How do we do that? It's the question. Jesus shows us right at the beginning in verses 14 and 15. What does he say? Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. You see, this idea of repentance and belief, they go hand in hand. They're really two sides of the same coin. And you know that any good news really, to some degree, makes you repent and believe. Any good news will make you repent and believe to some degree. For example... When I told my wife Susie, when I said I wanted to marry her and she said that she wanted to marry me, that was very good news. But after a few weeks went by and a few months went by and even years go by, you start to realize just what that good news actually means. And it means that I was actually going to have to give up some of my personal freedoms meaning I couldn't just run off with my buddies on a road trip anytime I felt like it. And I couldn't just spend money ever how I saw fit. Something had changed. A change had taken place. But here's the thing. You never once heard me complain about it. Why? Because it was Susie. The news was so good. It was Susie and I loved her. And I couldn't wait to marry her. And so I didn't even think about what it was going to cost me or what I was going to have to give up because the news was so sweet and good. You see, for many of us, we have such a poor view of repentance. Because for many of you, when you hear the word repentance and you hear the words that Jesus is calling you to repentance, you almost automatically go down the road of, I've got to stop doing this and I've got to stop doing that in order to save myself from going to hell. And I want to say this, yes, Jesus is going to tell some of you tonight that if you're going to follow him, that you can't be in that fraternity. Yes, Jesus is going to tell some of you independents 
that your attitudes towards the Greek system are flat out wrong and sinful. Yes, Jesus is going to tell you who you can and cannot date. Yes, Jesus is going to tell some of you that you drink too much. Jesus is going to meddle in your weekend activities, in your career choices, right down to the car you drive and the clothes you wear. But why? That's my question. Why is Jesus doing that? Is it to keep you from having all the fun? What's the point of repentance? You see, the point of repentance is not what will happen to you if you don't. The point of repentance, friends, is life. The point of repentance is joy. It's all for the good news. And what I'm trying to suggest is that the reason why most of you have such a poor view of repentance and the reason why when you even hear that word, some of you get tense and uptight and cringe, the reason why that's the case is because your good news really isn't all that good. You see, if we could just see that what Jesus is saying here is that the life that He brings and the joy that He brings is so good and so sweet that it actually creates in you a new power that enables you to face those decisions and live in accordance with the king, kingdom principles that he seeks to bring into the world. Mark's shown us the nature of the kingdom. He's shown us the entrance into the kingdom. And then thirdly and finally, he shows us the call of the kingdom. This is where it gets tough. Look at verses 16 through 20. So right after Jesus' first sermons in verse in first sermon in 14 and 15, what does he do immediately? He immediately calls people to follow him. And what's unique is this is very unique in Jewish tradition. Why? Well, because pupils or disciples chose their rabbi. Rabbis did not choose their disciples. It would be similar to what goes on today. If you're going to study for a PhD or a master's program, you're going to study, you're going to pick the place to where you're going to study. Maybe you want to study with a certain person or a certain professor or a certain expert in the field. But what Mark is showing us is that Jesus comes with a different type of authority. He shows us that Jesus is just not like any other rabbi. Jesus actually pursues those he actually calls and summons those that he wants to have a relationship with. Look at verses 16 and 17. Pretty strong verses. And you know from reading the Gospels that these men actually did fish again and that they actually did relate to their parents. But I want you to see how disruptive it still is. Do you get the tension there of how disruptive it was for these men in this moment? I mean, we often don't get the impact of this call. And we just simply read over it and gloss over it. But think about it just for a minute. We often think that James and John and Simon and Andrew 
were kind of nomads or wanderers that they're just kind of sitting around doing nothing, maybe casting the fishing pole every now and then, and that they really didn't have that much to give up. We think that they're poor. And so our thought is, of course they're going to follow Jesus. These guys had nothing better to do. But if you read the text closely, and even on into chapter 1, we realize that really wasn't the case. These guys were entrepreneurs. They were businessmen. They had a fishing business, and not only that, it was a family business. Some of you know what that's like. You have a family, a, a family business in your own families, and you know what it would be like to uh, be a part of that and to maybe take over the business one day. That's what these men had, and not only that, we learned that they had families. Look at verse 30. On down in chapter 1, Peter had a mother-in-law, which meant that he was married. These men had families, wives, children. Going over into chapter 2, and we look at Levi. He was a prominent tax collector, which meant that he was very, very wealthy. And the point is this, that these men had a lot to give up. And Jesus is calling them, and he's calling all of us tonight to let go and to leave everything that we hold dear, everything that we're white-knuckling. Jesus is calling us to hold them with an open hand and to make him the supreme passion in our life. And the temptation, if you're like me, is to come to this passage and to soften it and to say, well, yeah, I hear you. But Jason, I mean, these are the disciples, and I'm not one of the disciples. These are, these are kind of the special forces of the Christian life. These are the real insiders and the specially chosen ones. And so, of course, he's going to call them to give up these kinds of things. Surely that call is not for me. I mean, surely it's not for us. Surely we can just live a good life, do the best we can, and not have to leave everything. You know how much I wish that were true? <laughs> but it's not. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. The Bible doesn't let us off the hook. How do I know? Because if you flip over to John or Luke chapter 14, you don't have to flip there, I'll tell you what it says. Jesus, He calls the crowds to Himself. And He says these words. If anyone anyone would come after me, he must hate his father and mother. He must hate his wife and children. He must hate his brother and sisters. He must hate even his own life or he can't be my disciple. And what's interesting here is there's no double standard. Jesus says that if you want anything to do with me, you've got to hate your father and mother, your wife and children, your brother and sisters, even your own life, or you can't be my disciple. That is what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. And so the question then is, Jason, I don't understand. Jesus tells us not to hate people. He actually tells us to love our enemies, and so what's he saying here? Jesus is not saying in that 
chapter to hate actively like I hate you. Jesus is calling us to hate comparatively. And what Jesus is saying is that I want you to be so passionate about me that everything else in your life that you're attached to looks like hate in comparison. Friends, it's not enough. It's not enough to have Jesus in our back pocket. It's not enough to even have Jesus in our heart if He doesn't rule every single area of our life and of our heart. Following Jesus means that He lays claim to your checkbook. It means that He lays claim to your weekend activities. Following Jesus means that He lays claim to your computer and to your future plans, to your dating life, to your friendships, to your sexuality, and to who you're going to marry. Jesus, in this opening part of the book of Mark, comes with that authority and with that claim. And if none of this makes sense to you, could it be that you are using Jesus to simply get what you want rather than submitting to Him as Lord for who He truly is? You see, the Christian life really is an entirely different life. It's not, Jesus, it's not whatever I want to do plus Jesus. You see, Jesus won't be used. Jesus refuses to be an add-on. You know, that fall when I took my family to the Magic Kingdom, I had expectations that Life in that kingdom would be good, would be comfortable, would be restful and full of joy. And I expected one thing, and I got something totally different. You know, Jesus in this passage comes and He talks about His kingdom, but it's completely different because Jesus is crystal clear about the expectations of His kingdom. And the expectations of His kingdom are a life of repentance and faith and a call to come and die. And you might be sitting here and I'm asking the same question. This sounds really hard. And you're absolutely right. And you're sitting here like me and you're saying, how can I possibly follow Jesus? How can I do this? The only way we'll ever follow Jesus is when we start to see that Jesus Himself does absolutely everything that He calls us to do. And it's only by seeing that will we ever have the courage to live the way that He's called us to live. Because you see, when He calls James and John to leave their father there in the boat... Jesus had already left His Father in heaven. You see, when Jesus, when we see Jesus, the one who left the ultimate city, the one who left the ultimate family, the one who left the ultimate home, and when we realize that in doing that, Jesus came down to earth 
so that you and I could be absolutely sure of our standing in God's kingdom. Seeing that, then and only then, will we ever follow Jesus, no matter what the cost. Let me pray.